A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and, gives, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. We are starting in on a series in the Sermon on the Mount. Last uh, spring, before, Chris, uh, before Easter, we did a series through the book of Matthew. We actually went through Matthew in about six weeks, which is very fast, and we skipped over the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a, is a very famous sermon of Jesus, three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, where he gives a teaching that is uh, profoundly impactful on Christianity and, and in many ways has been impactful on the whole world. So my starting question is this one, as we enter into looking at the Sermon on the Mount. What do you want from your religion? Do you come to religion for moral guidance? Just to become a better person? Do you go to church occasionally because it's a part of a well-balanced life? To be a respectable person, you should go to church or have a church you belong to. This is essentially what Thomas Jefferson wanted. So if, if that's the, the realm you're in, you're in good company. The, um, the, the ever humble and understated Thomas Jefferson decided that he wanted a religion without all the nonsense. He wanted a Jesus without all the embarrassing faith stuff. So as many of you know, in, in 1804, he took a razor to his Bible and he cut out the parts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John talking about Jesus that he wanted to keep. And he cut out, when he pasted it back together, anything that had to do with miracles or Jesus being talked about in some sort of divine way, the messy stuff having to do with resurrections and such. He didn't want that in there. He pieced it all together in what he titled The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. He included Jesus' interactions with people, his parables, and some of his teachings, including the Sermon on the Mount. I think the problem is that Thomas Jefferson, for all of his brilliance and insight, did a poor job of actually reading the Sermon on the Mount. 
You see, the Sermon on the Mount, when you enter into it and sit under it, is not about a civilized private religion. It's not about finding good morality, the sort of things that Jefferson wanted. Rather, what you find as you read through the Sermon on the Mount is that there are embarrassing claims that Jesus makes about having the authority to tell us what to do, the sort of authority that should be reserved for God alone. And in his descriptions of life following him in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus demands the kind of discipleship that leave most of us condemned. And he challenges every culture that has ever stood and ever, any heart that has ever lived. So I want to enter in looking at what Jesus is doing in what is famously called the Beatitudes, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. But in order to understand what Jesus is doing and some of these audacious claims that he makes, we need to understand the setting for the Sermon on the Mount. So where did the Sermon on the Mount take place? On a mount, right? Okay. We're not really sure exactly what the mount was, but what Matthew is trying to describe is a place apart from the city. He, it could have been just a hill. It could have been a mountain. It was probably more like an outcropping of hills away from civilization, And the interesting thing to think about is what Jesus was doing was a highly provocative act. Think about it. Jesus, a well-known prophet, gathers a group of Israelites, would-be disciples, in the wilderness and starts delivering to them the law. What is he doing? He's reenacting the story of the Exodus. Like Moses, who gathered the people of Israel in the wilderness, went up on a mountain, Mount Sinai, received the law of God, came down and delivered it to the Israelites so that they were formed into the people of God. Jesus now, standing outside of a city, gathers a crowd of people, calling his disciples and telling them what God is calling them to do. What Jesus is doing is highly charged theologically charged and provocative. Consider his audacity in doing this. What formerly was found in Judaism in following the Torah, the law, was now to be found in faithfulness to Jesus and his words. Jesus says, you have heard it said in the law, but I say... Jesus is redrawing what it means to be Israel, what it means to be the people of God, and saying, it has to do with me, Jesus. In our own passage, he talks about being reviled and persecuted on my account. Think about that. He's not saying, blessed are you if you are persecuted and reviled for being Jewish or for following the law or for worshiping Yahweh, the God of the Bible, He says, blessed are you if you're persecuted and reviled for me. He's claiming to be greater than the law and on par with the God who gave it. Jesus delivers his Sermon on the Mount, very aware of what he's doing there in the wilderness. And as he's preaching the sermon, he's giving a picture of what it is to be in the kingdom of God. Some commentators have called the Sermon on the Mount his kingdom manifesto, Jesus' kingdom declaration. 
And, and that word kingdom, it's, it's filled with all sorts of uh, thick things that we're, we have a hard time unpacking. But basically, in that day and age that Jesus was walking, he went around saying, the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a, pair of, a pearl of great price. Again and again, he talks about the kingdom. And we don't live in a kingdom. We don't have a king or a prince. And so we lose sight of what Jesus is talking about here. But what he was talking about was something that for hundreds of years, the people of Israel had longed for. What they were longing for was God's reign in heaven to be seen and felt and experienced on earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is talking when he talks about kingdom, about the reign of God as it will one day be. When God establishes justice, meaning the righting of all wrongs, and shalom, peace, wholeness, restoration, human flourishing, reconciliation. And so the Sermon on the Mount is a picture of that kingdom. Jesus describing what it will be like and what it is meant to be like when God reigns in a person's heart, in a community of people, and at the end of all time. And it's a description, therefore, of kingdom living for all of us who say we want to follow Jesus. That we are meant to be the kind of people who reveal and spread the reign of God, God's justice and shalom all around us. And so then Jesus, of course, in that setting, gives us what we know of as the Beatitudes. They're called the Beatitudes, blessed are you, blessed are those, because the word blessed is a benediction, a beatitude. The word blessed there is how he starts off each of these eight phrases. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the mor- those who mourn, the meek. And then he finishes each one of these blesseds with a, for theirs will be, or they shall inherit, they will be comforted. The positive side, that, that blessing at the end, is, is really an understood that God is going to provide for these people. But we often look at these things and we think, uh, I, if I'm poor in spirit, then I'll inherit the kingdom of heaven. And rather, this is not meant to be a, if you do this, then this will happen, so much as when this is describing you, this also, the benefits are describing you. The equivalent would be something like this. There's a little baby over in England named Prince George, right? Prince George has the throne of England. The throne of England is his. Wills and Kate had had precious little George, and in 50 or 70 years, the throne of England, the kingship, will be his. It's not if Prince George does something, then he can become king. He is the once and future king. It's already his state. He just will await the fullness of it in 40 or 50 or 70 or 90 years, depending on how long the queen lives, too. But I don't want to talk fully about the blessings, the kingdom of heaven, the comfort of these things that God promises to be a part of who we are and our experience now and in the future. I want to talk instead about the initial descriptions, these things that Jesus describes his disciples as and calls us to. He talks about being poor in spirit. 
he's echoing Isaiah 61, this idea that if you recognize how depraved and broken you are, you trust fully in God. He talks about being meek, restraining your power, and not exploiting your strength for your own good. In other words, he's talking about deep and authentic humility. Jesus goes on to talk about those who mourn, and towards the end, about those who are persecuted and reviled. He's talking about being an outcast, being somebody who is broken in life, who has dealt with deep suffering. He talks about being merciful and a peacemaker, the sort of people who selflessly are concerned to love and extend compassion and mercy and reconciliation to those around them. And he talks about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That word righteousness is actually also translated justice, hungering and thirsting for justice, for God's right to be done in this world and in our lives and about being pure in heart. In other words, desiring and longing for God more than for anything else on earth. You know, the the challenge of this list is that it's not exhaustive. We have eight things that Jesus describes, and yet he could have gone on with dozens more. So I think it's helpful if we could simplify these eight and this wider idea into what Jesus is really getting at. And if I were to simplify poor in spirit and meek and persecuted and peacemakers and merciful and pure in heart and hungering and thirsting, I would simplify it down to three things. One, deep, authentic humility. Two, selflessness. Selflessness that extends in love and compassion. And three, an absolute desire for God. That's it. All you have to do to be a disciple is to be completely humble, totally selfless, and desire God more than anything else. It's easier when there's only three, right? But why is it so hard to live these out, to be humble and selfless and desire God more than anything else? It's so hard because we are proud, selfish, and we want to be God. Occasionally around my house, I will lose my temper. I get angry. Um, My kids usually mock from a distance, Dad, you have anger management issues. I'd like to blame television for their response. But the reality is, I do sometimes. And I remember a a number of years back when I asked Sarah, why do I lose my temper? I never used to do that. And she said, well, you didn't have kids before. (laughs) But the reason why the kids play in, she said, is because previously in life you could do whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted, however you wanted. You were in charge of how you got out the door and when you did, where you went, what you ate, what was on television. And when that's being challenged or threatened, it's much harder to maintain peace, to be meek, to be merciful. The reality is, deep down in, I'm selfish, I'm proud, and I want to be God and in control and in power 
in my home or in my car or wherever I am. And anyone or anything that threatens that is going to get the wrath of this would-be God. The Beatitudes, this kingdom view, challenges every one of us at our heart. Jesus was intent on challenging every heart and any culture that ever lived. What Jesus is talking about in these Beatitudes and throughout the Sermon on the Mount is a counter-cultural kingdom. You see, to the first century Jews who were listening to Jesus, what he's talking about in these Beatitudes is completely unthinkable to them. Remember, what was the first century culture like, that Middle Eastern first century culture? We've talked about it here. It was an honor and shame culture. So when Jesus is talking about being poor in spirit and meek and a peacemaker, the natural reaction of a first century Jew would have been, but what about being honored and respected? In that day and age, revenge was sometimes necessary. And Jesus is talking about peacemaking? Jesus tells them to find their reward in and from God, even if they are shamed and reviled by their community. This is horrific, embarrassing, ghastly stuff much like an English person jumping a queue. Kate Fox, an anthropologist from Oxford, wrote a book called Watching the English. Now, Kate Fox is an anthropologist who's well-written and has written about cultures all around the globe. A few years back, she wrote a book called Watching the English where she said, I figured I've studied cultures around the globe. I should probably study my own English culture. And so she spent several years studying Englishness as an English woman. One of her chapters is about queuing up. She said the English love to queue up. They love to get in a line. And so she was going to test some of the theories of Englishness. And her, her, her project was going like this. One morning, she decided to go to a train station nearby and find one of the many queues that English people tend to jump into. And she was going to jump the queue. She was going to cut in line. She said, I'm, I was sweating. I was shaking. I was nearly sick to my stomach. Why? Because I was going to cut in line. Shaking, nervous, she cuts in line, and she's trying to listen and see what happens. And as she suspects, the English do what she thought the English would do, which is nobody's direct, because that would be very un-English. Instead, the people behind her do exactly what she suspected. They start muttering to nobody in particular about her. Oh my, it looks like somebody gets to be at the front of the line. Oh, I suppose they were giving out tickets somewhere, I'm sure. Oh, who does she think she is? Well, well, nobody was willing to confront her directly. That would be a very New York thing to do. Oh, ma'am, the line is back there. Or, hey, lady, get back there. (laughs) Just the idea of cutting in line was horrific to her. It was counter to her culture, counter to everything she had ever been raised on, counter to her very nature. When Jesus delivers these beatitudes, I think that was the reaction of the first disciples. Shaking, anxious, horrified, embarrassed and confused. What is Jesus talking about? This does not make sense in an honor and shame culture. 
And it's not just first century Israel which was challenged. Our current culture would be equally challenged. We're not an honor and shame culture. We're an individualistic society. We value achievements and success. And that individualism, that value for success, has gotten worse and worse as each generation has gone on. As we've moved from the builders and the boomers into Gen X and Gen Y, Gen X being 30s and 40s, roughly Gen Y being 20s and teens, our individualism and our self-focus has risen. Gen X and Gen Y folk, we tend to be those who value wealth and fame and beauty and pleasure even more than previous generations in America. Gene Twang wrote a book, a sociologist wrote a book called Generation Me, in which she was cataloging some of the, uh, some of the challenges of Gen X and Gen Yers and their individualism, their focus on self. And it, it, a couple of the things that she, she points out are, are really insightful, in particular, Gen X and Gen Y's overvaluing of fame. She said, in a study from the 1990s, young people were given a choice between a life of fame or a life of contentment. Seven out of ten young people in the 90s chose fame over contentment. A generation earlier, the boomers only chose it by 30% in the same question. In 2004 and 2005, MTV ran a short-lived show called I Want a Famous Face in which young people would go through plastic surgery in order to look like the famous people that they overvalued. In 2004, a study of college freshmen found that one in 20 college freshmen in 2004 had their aims set on being an actor. Sorry, not one in four, one in 20, about 5%. 5%, that was actually 100,000 college freshmen wanted to be an actor. 100,000. Every year there are 15,000 television shows pitched. Only 20 make it to TV. Of 70,000 scripts that are written for Hollywood, only 500 become movies, only about 100 of which have you ever heard of. And yet 100,000 college freshmen want to be actors to be famous. Where is the place for humility? Selflessness a desire for God more than for anything else. It's counter to everything in our culture. The Sermon on the Mount is nearly incomprehensible in our culture, which means we must change from the inside out and be completely reoriented towards Christ. Otherwise, what we're going to do is we're going to look at these things that Jesus calls us to, and we're going to try hard for a little while. I mean, We'll be merciful, blessed are the merciful, so long as the people that we're showing mercy to are those who deserve it. If we don't like them, if they're our rivals, our competitors, our enemies, if they're getting their just desserts, I might restrain my desire to show mercy. We'll be selfless and humble, as Jesus talks about, so long as it advances our career or we get credit for it. And sure, we all want to desire God more, but up to a point. Not so much as to be willing to sell everything or surrender all. I mean, after all, we all want a little more religion in our life, just not enough to be weird, right? Right? 
if we try to be merciful and pure in heart by discipline and willpower alone, we're going to fail. We need to be transformed. We need to be changed from the inside out. We need to be completely reoriented Christward. In other words, we need the gospel. The gospel tells us there was one who humbled himself, taking on the form of a man. There was one who was selfless, selfless in love to the point of death. There was one who desired the purposes of God, his Father, enough to die for us. The gospel tells us that we are deeply sinful and flawed. So whether you are on death row or in a monastery, you equally fall short of the glory of God. You equally deserve the wrath of God. You equally are sinful and broken. In other words, we should be deeply humble if we grasp the gospel. But we should also be filled with the knowledge that this God loves us, that he didn't leave us in that state, but through his son, Jesus Christ, has provided a way out. That God, in his love and mercy, sent Jesus Christ to bear the wrath that we deserve for our sin. Because he loved us. He accepts us through Jesus Christ. Only when we are filled with a deepness of the knowledge of that love can we in any way hope to be selfless. Continually so. No longer needing to defend or carve out or steal love for ourselves, but warmed by the fire of God's love that never goes out and never gives up on us. Only when we go to the cross and see what God has done for us in Jesus Christ will our desire for God begin to change, not by willpower, but by being hit over the head by the mercy and grace of a God who loves us. We need to let the gospel penetrate deeper to the center of us. You know, Jesus concludes this whole section of the Beatitudes talking about salt and light. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill. A lamp on a stand in a house. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment about that day and age. A day and age when there was no electricity. So this would have been a day and age when it was very, very dark. A day and age when if there was no electricity, things could get very dark very quickly. Can you imagine wandering in the wilderness, trying to get somewhere, and you can't see anything? And then you turn the corner, and finally you see, off in the distance, a city. Cities in that day and age were places of refuge and of hope and of safety and of hospitality. In a world where when the clouds came out and the moon was not bright, it was as dark as dark. To see a city off in the distance was to have hope. And when Jesus talks about a light, a lamp set on a lampstand, he's talking about the sort of thing that everybody understood, which was in that day and age, you didn't just go into rooms and flip on lights all over the place. But every house would have had a lamp. That lamp would have provided some light for the whole room. It would be absolutely ridiculous to take the lamp and put a bushel over it, to cover it over. The lamp was the only way that you could see to do things. It provided clarity and truth. And and as anyone knows, 
If you've ever been in darkness, you quickly move to despair. Light, light provides hope. Kingdom living, which Jesus is talking about, it's not about personal piety and a private religion that Jefferson wanted. Religion may be private, but being a Christian is not. Following Jesus Christ and a private religion are mutually exclusive. Nor do we follow the Beatitudes just so that others will applaud how wonderful we are or even emulate us, but rather, as Jesus says towards the end of our section, that others may see your life and give glory to God the Father. Kingdom living is pursued not to get something, but in order to give God. Through Jesus, through Jesus we find that God's kingdom reign is beginning to break into the earth. And so we live the Sermon on the Mount to reveal God's reign, to spread God's justice and shalom, the good news of the salvation that has come in Jesus Christ. And you think about it. A single person, a home, or a church like this that is completely transformed by the gospel, that is following Jesus and living with a kingdom view, will be that city on a hill. It will be the lamp on the stand in the house. The reality is you may not be that bright of a lamp. We as a church may be a pretty small city, but it may just be what God intends for your home, on your street, in your school, in this town, to bring the light of the hope of the kingdom of God as it breaks in on this world through us. Let's pray. God, our Father, you love us, you've made us for yourself, and yet in our sin we break away. I pray that the words of this sermon would not just condemn us, but would give us a picture of what you are calling us to, and that we might be faithful to follow you, to reveal your kingdom, and to enjoy the benefits of the God who loved us, has made us, and has saved us, in whose name we pray. Amen.